Hello and welcome to episode two of the Reading Way podcast. I'm David. I hope you enjoyed episode one. In this episode, we have a mix of works, some older and some very new. So let's go to the first piece. And this is from American writer Ray Bradbury. He's best known for his novels, The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man and Fahrenheit 451. And I'd like to read for you from the opening lines of the book. It was a pleasure to burn. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. With the brass nozzle in his fists, with his great python spitting its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his head, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor, playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to bring down the tatters and charcoal ruins of history. With his symbolic helmet, numbered 451, on his stolid head, and his eyes all orange flame with the thought of what came next, he flicked the igniter and the house jumped up in a gorging fire that burned the evening sky red and yellow and black. He strode in a swarm of fireflies. He wanted, above all, like the old joke, to shove a marshmallow and a stick in the furnace while the flapping pigeon-winged books died on the porch and lawn of the house. While the books went up in sparkling wells and blew away on a wind turned dark with burning. Montag grinned the fierce grin of all men singed and driven back by flame. He knew that when he returned to the firehouse he might wink at himself, a minstrel man bed corked in the mirror. Later, going to sleep, he would feel the fiery smile still gripped by his face muscles in the dark. It never went away, that smile. It never, ever went away as long as he remembered. Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature that paper in books burns. Bradbury's novel tells of a near future in America when literature is censored by burning books, houses and libraries where they are found. Just by coincidence, on the 25th of May 2020, Hay Digital Festival had a virtual programme on a connected but all too real topic. It was hosted by John Simpson and it was called More Than Books, What It Means When Libraries Are Lost to Conflict. Guests were Bethany Hughes, Paul Boateng and Edmund Duval. It's still on the Hay Festival website. Have a listen. My second choice is from Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Chapter 1. Amar. Amar is walking along the promenade of the waterway that bisects her city. A few early morning barges cruise slowly by. To her left is the nautical-themed footbridge with its deck-like walkway and sailing mast pylons. To her right is the bend in the river as it heads east past Waterloo Bridge, 
towards the dome of St Paul's. She feels the sun begin to rise, the air still breezy before the city clogs up with heat and fumes. A violinist plays something suitably uplifting further along the promenade. Amar's play, The Last Amazon of Dehomey, opens at the National tonight. She thinks back to when she started out in theatre, when she and her running mate, Dominique, developed a reputation for heckling shows that offended their political sensibilities. Their powerfully trained actors' voices projected from the back of the stalls before they made a quick getaway. They believed in protests that was public, disruptive and downright annoying to those at the other end of it. She remembers pouring a pint of beer over the head of a director whose play featured semi-naked black women running around on stage behaving like idiots. Before doing a runner in the back streets of Hammersmith, howling. Girl, Woman, Other was a 2019 Booker Prize winner. Bernadine Evaristo has been described as, quote, writing about the African diaspora, unquote. For me, in this book, she does that and more. She has introduced me to the lives of people I would have had no idea about, and I feel all the better for that. If you can, go and buy the book right now. The third extract is from William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Madeleine McMahon reads Lady Macbeth's speech, goading her husband Macbeth and stealing his nerve to murder Duncan, the King of Scotland. Madeleine McMahon. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Have it slept since and wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? From this time, such I account thy love. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemest the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon, I would, that the poor cat in adage. What beast was then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you just do it, then you were a man, and to be more than what you were, you would be so much more than man. Nor time nor place did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They have made themselves, and that their fitness now does unmake you. I have given suck, and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done to this. If we should fail, we fail. But screw your courage to the sticking place, and we will not fail. When Duncan is asleep, where to the rather shall his day's hard journey soundly invite him, his two chamberlains will I with wine and wassail so convince that memory, the water of the brain, shall be a fume, and the receipt of reason a limbeck only. When in swinish sleep their drenched natures lie as in a death, what cannot you and I perform upon the unguarded Duncan? What not put upon his spongy officers who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? Thank you once again, Madeline. Next, I make no apology for giving you another John Steinbeck offering. This time from Travels with Charlie, published in 1961 
about a road trip Steinbeck undertook around the USA in 1960. When I was very young and the urge to be someplace else was on me, I was assured by mature people that maturity would cure this itch. When years described me as mature, the remedy prescribed was middle age. In middle age, I was assured that greater age would calm my fever, and now that I am 58, perhaps senility will do the job. Nothing has worked. Four hoarse blasts of a ship's whistle still raise the hair on my neck and set my feet to tapping. The sound of a jet, an engine warming up, even the clopping of shod hooves on pavement brings on the ancient shudder. The dry mouth and vacant eye, the hot palms and the churn of stomach high up under the ribcage. In other words, I don't improve. In further words, once a bum, always a bum. I fear the disease is incurable. I set this matter down not to instruct others, but to inform myself. When the virus of restlessness begins to take possession of a wayward man and the road away from here seems broad and straight and sweet, the victim must first find in himself a good and sufficient reason for going. This, for the practical bum, is not difficult. He has a built-in garden of reasons to choose from. Next, he must plan his trip in time and space, choose a direction and a destination. And last, he must implement the journey, how to go, what to take, how long to stay. This part of the process is invariable and immortal. I set it down only so that newcomers to bumdom, like teenagers in New Hat Sin, will not think they invented it. Once a journey is designed, equipped and put into process, a new factor enters and takes over. A trip, a safari, an exploration is an entity, different from all other journeys. It has personality, temperament, individuality, uniqueness. A journey is a person in itself. No two are alike, and all plans, safeguards, policing and coercion are fruitless. We find, after years of struggle, that we do not take a trip. A trip takes us. Tour masters, schedules, reservations, brass-bound and inevitable, dash themselves to wreckage on the personality of the trip. Only when this is recognised can the blown-in-the-glass bum relax and go along with it. Only then do the frustrations fall away. In this, a journey is like a marriage. The certain way to be wrong is to think you control it. I feel better now having said this, although only those who have experienced it will understand it. Although this book has since been criticised as more fictional than factual travelogue, Steinbeck does, for me at least, seem to make a fitting commentary on the state of the US nation of the 1950s and 60s, and maybe even now. The subtitle for this book is In Search of America, 
a telling phrase for Steinbeck, who is considered as one of the great American writers. Now, Andy McLeod will read from Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, written between 1589 and 1592. Faustus is a man full of hubris and ambition, so much so that to achieve what he wants, he sells his soul to the devil. Legend has it that real devils appeared at one performance of this play and frightened the life out of the audience and the actors. Well, here's Andy McLeod as Dr. Faustus. How am I glutted with conceit of this? Shall I make spirits fetch me what I please? Resolve me of all ambiguities, perform what desperate enterprise I will? I'll have them fly to India for gold. Ransack the ocean for orient pearl and search all corners of the newfound world for pleasant fruits and princely delicates. I'll have them read me strange philosophy and tell the secrets of all foreign kings. I'll have them wall all Germany with brass and make swift Rhine circle fur Wittenberg. I'll have them fill the public schools with silk wherewith the students shall be bravely clad. I'll levy soldiers with the coin they bring and chase the Prince of Parma from our land, and reign sole king of all the provinces. Yea, stranger engines for the brunt of war than was the fiery keel at Antwerp's bridge I'll make my servile spirits to invent. And thank you, Andy. Our final contribution is from the autobiography of Alan Johnson, ex-Labour politician, shadow chancellor of the Exchequer and secretary of state of various departments in Labour governments. This piece, however, tells of Johnson as a young teenager being introduced to the mod subculture in the mid-1960s that has continued to influence music and fashion right up to the present day. We talked all the way there. The real mod told me how much he liked Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and asked if I'd heard Sonny Boy Williamson or Lead Belly, Elmore James or Mose Allison, providing me with valuable ammunition in the battle to be top dog in the musical knowledge stakes at school. He told me about the clubs he went to and the bands he heard. Best of all, he passed on his own maxim, the philosophy, in a nutshell, of the West London mod. You may be poor, but don't show poor. These were kids from the slums like me, infatuated with Italian style. They saw no reason why they couldn't match it. Scooters were cheap to buy and run. The clothes could be expensive, but if you saved and bought wisely, you could look good with fewer clothes of better quality. Decent second-hand suits and ties could be picked up in the Portobello Road or Shepherd's Bush Market. At the Kilburn party venue, the real mod left me in the car and went in to collect my records. Returning with each one, 
neatly replaced in its paper sleeve. He assured me he'd wiped them carefully with a tea towel and he was so meticulous about everything that I believed him. On the way home, I listened as he relayed sacred advice about the beauty of a tonic suit with five button cuffs and six inch vents. How cufflinks must only be worn on shirts with double cuffs, never in single cuffs. How important it was to wear long socks so that you didn't show acres of bare shin between sock and trouser leg when you sat down. Although he'd progressed to a car, the real mod still revered the scooter and spoke of the joy of riding a Vespa through London on a sunny day, wearing a Fred Perry with Levi Stay Press trousers. Never, never jeans, which were a nasty American garment worn by greasy rockers. I want a pair of brown hush puppies. I soaked it all up, every word. Here was a role model with whom I could identify, a young man from the slums who dressed with a style and confidence that personified his attitude. By the time he dropped me back at Walmer Road, the others had dispersed and Linda had gone with Cheryl back to her home in certain dwellings. I sat alone in the front room, pondering a new approach to life. You may be poor, but don't show poor. I'd known since primary school I wouldn't be a draftsman. I might be a musician. I would certainly be a mod. Those are our offerings for episode two of the Reading Wave podcast. I read from Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, John Steinbeck's Travel with Charlie, Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other, and Alan Johnson's This Boy. And a big, big thank you once again to the wonderful Madeline McMahon and Andy McLeod, who read from Shakespeare's Macbeth and Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. If you would like to contact us about any of our choices or give us your own ideas, we are on SoundCloud, we're on email, the reading wave podcast at gmail.com and we're also on twitter at reading wave one stay safe stay sane and goodbye until the next time <laughs>